Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and in the battle between Dumbledore or Gandalf, I would prefer Gandalf because he loses his temper way more often and I find that relatable. <laughs> I'm Caitlin, and I think I'm also on Team Gandalf because there are never actually any limits set on what his power can do, and he probably would just call a bunch of eagles and like they would eat Dumbledore. So I'm Cameron and I'm going to think of the children and also choose Gandalf because his record of child endangerment is way better than Dumbledore's. <laughs> <laughs> am I go ahead, Stacy. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Stacy and I am team Gandalf too, mostly because even though he does withhold information, he seems to have better reasons <laughs> other than keeping mystery in the plot. <laughs> Very true. Well, we will try not to withhold information from you tonight, which is why this week we have special guest Stacey Whitman on, the founder and publisher of two books, an imprint of Lee and Lowe that focuses on diverse middle grade and YA books. Stacey was a founding member of the CBC Diversity Committee. She is also currently looking for submissions for their New Visions Award, but submissions close on August 31st, so act fast. So tonight we have a fabulous discussion on diversity. And Stacy, you kind of are pioneering this right now in YA and middle grade. So tell us about Two Books. Two Books is my imprint at Lee and Lowe. I actually started it as a small press. We started in 2009 as a small press devoted to diversity in fantasy and science fiction for young readers. And uh, I did a Kickstarter campaign. Lee and Lowe saw that Kickstarter campaign and offered to bring me to New York and have me start it as an imprint of Lee and Lowe. So now we do all genres for middle grade and YA. We're even dabbling in nonfiction. In fact, just this morning, we announced a new nonfiction graphic novel about the Stonewall riots that will be coming out in a few years. So yeah, my main love is science fiction and fantasy, but I love all genres as well. Awesome. So we wanted to do this in two different parts. We wanted to know a little bit more about what working with a writer feels like from your side of the desk. Because it's mm-hmm. like that scary thing that nobody knows about until they actually have an editor or a publisher. Right. <laughs> so I w- what can you tell us about how you approach working with a writer on a project? What does the process look like? As a publisher, my job encompasses a lot at a small press. But let's focus in on the editorial side of things. And as an editor, my job is to be as invisible as possible in the final book. You know, you can acknowledge your editor, of course. But my job is to make your book which is always your book, the best book that it can possibly be. So I ask questions. I want to challenge my writers to dig deeper. Basically, there's a lot of me asking questions and the author coming up with answers. And I actually, I might suggest solutions, but I don't necessarily care whether the author takes my suggestions for solutions so much as that they resolve whatever issue I'm pointing out. So what does the process look like? It starts out with a developmental edit. That could be a couple of rounds, depending on what needs to be happening and whether things, as things change, whether we need to address new issues that might arise or be uncovered. 
and then we go into line edits. And the difference between a developmental edit and a line edit is the developmental is big picture. We're looking at things like character and plot and pacing and world building and all those big picture things because we don't even care about what the sentence structure looks like until we take care of those big issues. And then when we feel like those are satisfactory, we go into the line edit, which means literally looking at each line, each paragraph. Does this line need to be here? Should this paragraph be there? You know, things like that. Are we being redundant? Can I delete half this paragraph? Because it says exactly what you just said in the first half of the paragraph. All those kinds of things. And then we, you know, we tinker with that a little bit more and then it goes into copy edit, which is actually a different person for me. A lot of people think that editors fix grammar, but that's actually not what I do as the person who's acquiring your book. That's a different person entirely. They are looking at grammar, punctuation. They're looking at our style guide and making sure that the spelling follows the American style of spelling rather than British, you know, all those kinds of things. And at the very end, after it's already been put into design, it looks like a real book, then somebody's going to go through and proofread it, who's also not me, though sometimes it is me because I'm at a small press and I wear a lot of hats. But so that's what the process looks like. One of my favorite copy editing stories ever. During my debut year, one of the we had like a debut group and one of the authors came in totally freaked out because she said, my copy editor in my contemporary romance went through and changed all instances of the word underwear to underpants because the style guide said they had to. (laughs) 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 And so they had to have a fun conversation about that. That that to me seems like a voice question. Like I'm I'm changing C-O-L-O-U-R to C-O-L-O-R. You know, that's a style guide issue. (laughs) The difference between forwards and forward, you know, those are style guide issues. Boy, I mean, like word choice is a little bit more iffy to me as far as <laughs> style guides go. It just made me really happy. <laughs> okay. But I think they resolved it. It turned out okay, unless you pick up a contemporary romance from 2017 that has lots of awkward instances <laughs> of the word underpants. I don't know. <laughs> so maybe adjacent to what the working with the writer once once you already know you're working on that project what that looks like what does it look like though starting from the they're submitting and i guess we haven't decided if we're moving forward with this yet so the the major question that i'm asking when i begin reading a submission and and actually let me clarify here that i actually don't read my slush anymore which is a it's an amazing thing not to have to do that after (laughs) nearly 20 years in this business i have a freelance reader who's reading things for me. And so she passes things along to me. But one of the major things that I'm asking as I start to read is why do I care? Why should I care? What about this project, whether it's from the pitch or from the first few pages, will make me want to continue to turn the page? And whether that's the concept or the voice or the characters, it really should be all of the above. Those are the things that I'm looking for as I dive in. And I'm also looking for a sense of wonder when we're talking about science fiction and fantasy especially of wanting to remain in this world or not wanting to remain in this world if you're talking about you know dystopia but in sense of intrigue i keep telling my own storybook i should probably stop but i remember when my book first came out someone said if you lived in the world of the book you were reading right now what would it be? And someone was reading my book and they're like, please don't make me live here. It was <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lots of like, especially that big wave of dystopia that we had in the like last five years or so. 
well, really longer than that, because we're talking about it's really starting with like the Hunger Games, the Maze Runner, all of those. You don't always necessarily want to want to live in a world, but it's a world that maybe you want to have hope for that mm-hmm. your characters are going to be able to overcome it in some way. A world that asks an interesting question. Yes, yes, maybe. that's a, that's a good way of putting it. It's fun to watch people excel despite circumstances. And a lot of dystopias give a lot of those awful circumstances for people to excel in spite of. That's true. I think one of the amazing things about Katniss is that she has no hope. She literally is supposed to kill off everyone else in the arena. And it's cool to watch her figure out how to make that work. Yeah. Without like corrupting herself, I guess. Anyway, we should move on. (laughs) So what advice would you have for aspiring authors then who are trying to revise their own work to get it ready for submission? Number one is allow yourself time. If you're revising immediately after you've just finished your first draft, you're not going to have enough distance to really look at it on the whole. And in fact, what I suggest for somebody, if once you've given yourself enough time, is to print it out if you have the paper. Don't do it on your screen because when you're editing on screen at least for me when you're editing on screen you're focused on a paragraph and at the point at which you're revising a whole novel you're talking about 50,000 to 100,000 words that you are trying to look out in the whole and so printing it out and being able to like look at it all or whether that means that you're using scrivener and you're you know using those tiles or whatever to be able to look at the big picture reading it out loud can help you, especially with voice, but it can also help you figure out where you're tripping up, where things don't make sense because you're hearing it out loud back to yourself. Writing groups are really wonderful, but you really need to choose wisely when it comes to writing groups because oftentimes you'll have grown in a way that maybe your peers in a particular class have not. And so it's always about finding someone who is at the same place where you are and has the similar goals to you. So that means somebody who's writing in the same genre, the same age group, whether we're talking about a science fiction or science fiction and fantasy writing group, or you're talking about a YA or YA and picture book writing group. You doesn't have to have everything in common, but you need to have enough in common where you can be supportive of each other and have the knowledge that you need to, to give back to each other. Also, if you've come to the point where you're submitting a lot, you're getting a lot of rejections, perhaps some encouraging rejections, but still not really, really not making that breakthrough of getting a full read or not making that breakthrough of coming to the point of getting an offer. And it's been a few years on the same manuscript. Number one, you should be continuing to write new things because you always learn more as you continue to expand the books that you've written. My friend Brandon Sanderson sold his first book which was the sixth book that he had written as he was writing his 14th book. So, you know, he really put in the work before he got his first offer. Over and over, I hear that from all the writers that I know, whether that's, you know, as prolific as Brandon is because he can accidentally write a middle grade book in the middle of writing a 400,000 word (laughs) epic. Um, Or, you know, you've sold your second book when you're writing your fourth book, you know, Whatever your pace is, doesn't matter. Just keep working at it. But if you've come to the point where you're continuing to get rejections, you feel like you've got promise. You know, people are giving you good feedback, but it's not enough. 
there is a good set of freelance editors out there who can help you. But as with writing groups, I highly recommend that you choose wisely. Make sure that that freelance editor actually is an editor, that they know what they're talking about. I have a list, for example, on my website of people who are now freelancers who are used to work in-house at publishing houses. You don't necessarily have to work with somebody who has worked in-house, but it really, really makes a difference. And their rates can vary. I mean, there's a friend of mine who used to run Simon & Schuster who charges $300 an hour. So obviously not everybody can afford that. But there are are people who have been in-house before who have affordable rates as well or who will do a brief like 50-page critique, you know, those kinds of things. And the other thing is that you should be going to writing conferences because that is a place where you can network. And one of the biggest ways to make a breakthrough as a writer as you're submitting is networking because there are so many writers out there and so few editors that knowing somebody from a conference, like Caitlin and I have met a few times, and I mean, I don't remember you exactly, as you you mentioned, you know, I do meet a lot of people, but I know you're also a normal person who seems pleasant enough that you might be okay to work with, that kind of thing, that that general feeling of they're not a stalker, you know, things (laughs) like that are always good to have in the back of an editor's mind when your manuscript finally crosses their desk. I'm not guaranteeing that that will actually sell you a book, but it makes a difference. Well, in addition to what you just said, you don't read your own slush anymore. And so, I mean, if you meet an editor at a conference and they remember who you are and you are able to say, I'm submitting my work to you, would you please look at it? That's always yeah. an into. Yeah. So. Also, connected to that, to the I don't read my slush anymore, be nice to assistants because you never know who's actually reading your stuff. <laughs> Well, and Sometimes it's turn not. Into... And assistants, hungry young assistants do tend to acquire things from new authors more than people who have been around for 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. And it's a very small industry. Like, Definitely. If you're mean to somebody, people will find out. <laughs> anyway, one of the major reasons we wanted you to come on the show is because you work so much with, I mean, because you've been at the forefront of diversity in publishing. So This has been a conversation that's been happening out in the open for the last couple of years, and a lot of different things have happened. And I think it's a thing that a lot of people are scared to ask questions about now. So what advice do you have for authors who want to write characters who don't share their race or their sexual orientation or lived experience? My first bit of advice is to always approach it with humility, because you have to be able to understand there's a lot of things that you don't know that you don't know. So go into it with an attitude willing to learn, willing to learn about if you're in the United States, for example, I mean, most of your audience probably is, how power works in our society, who has the power and who doesn't, and what that means for your approach to a community that you want to write about that you're not a member of. Ask yourself what your relationship to that community is. When talking about these issues, I always use the example of Native Americans because Native Americans have a 500-year history of their voice being taken away from them. And so often, at every writing conference, every single one, I have some middle-aged white lady come up to me and say, I have decided to tell the Native American story as if they're this benevolent goddess coming in to swoop and save everybody. And my author, Joseph Bruchak, is Abenaki. And he loves to tell a story of a moment. He was on a panel with a Lakota elder. 
I think it was the Lakota elder. No, Blackfoot elder. He was on a panel with a Blackfoot elder. They had a lovely time. After the the panel was over, a a young white man came to the the Blackfoot elder and said, I've decided that I'm going to tell your stories and preserve them so that no one will forget. And the Blackfoot elder said, who told you you could tell our stories? And who told you that our stories were lost? A lot of times when you come to Native Ameri- when it comes to Native American communities, their storytelling is done within the community. It's not done for the greater multicultural um, United States. And it's not often, it depends on what, what you're talking about. And so particularly for Native Americans, they want to know what your relationship with the community is. As Cynthia Lydic Smith once asked, do they trust you enough to hold their babies? So that is a big part of humility as you approach. But different communities have different attitudes on whether you're welcome to write about them or not. And so, you know, that's why I say, what is your relationship with this community? And then the next thing is research, research, research. (laughs) And I don't just mean reading books. I mean, actually going out, first of all, Again, relationship with the community, because if you don't know anybody from that community, why are you wanting to, you have to ask yourself why you want to tell that story. And then, of course, there's the, just the want to represent, you know, the world as it is. You want to represent a diverse world. That's great. There are different kinds of ways of telling a story about somebody who's different from yourself. And so I highly recommend a course and a book, Tempest Bradford and Nissy Shawl run the course. The book is written by Nissy Shawl and Cynthia. Sorry, I'm blanking on her last name. But anyway, the, the book and the course are both called Writing the Other. And they have a lot of really great information on questions you should ask and considerations and that kind of thing. But what it really comes down to is relationships and also figuring out how to figure out what you don't know because we all have gaps in our knowledge. And I'm a Mormon, and I have read books by people who are not Mormon, who think that by talking to a few people who haven't been in touch with Mormonism for a long time, and I still use the word Mormon. Yeah, anyway, um, the gaps that I see tick me off. So if the gaps that I see is somebody who's a member of a religion that is you know, on the margins, but complete, not completely marginalized. If that ticks me off, what does that mean for somebody who's in a much more marginalized position as me? So that's why I say what I say. One example I like to pull out for people who don't have the background of feeling marginalized. I don't particularly because, you know, I'm white, whatever. Like, there's no reason for me to feel marginalized in my society. But if you think about, like, The Nightmare Before Christmas... This isn't about marginal societies. It's just removing it from our world entirely. Jack goes into Christmas Town and he looks around and he's like, shiny, beautiful. This is so cool. I love it. And then he takes it home and says, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that whole exactly. thing. And he has and he no doesn't, idea what the purpose is. He has is. no understanding of what Christmas is. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so a really great he tries, example. He knows that there are supposed to be presents, but he doesn't know scary things aren't supposed to come out of them. And just stuff like that, where he just doesn't understand quite what it's supposed to look like. So I think this is a good follow-up to that last one. So what is hashtag own voices? Hash, the hashtag itself was called was started by a writer named Corinne Doivis, and I'm not sure if I'm actually saying her name correctly, but I believe so. 
She started it as a way to uplift books by, written by writers who are from the community that they're writing about. She wanted to uplift both books about disabled characters written by somebody who shares that disability, for example, or books about people of color who are from the same community by people who are from the same community and so forth. And I think that it's a really beautiful concept when you think about it in the terms of uplifting and making more visible these books that don't always get the kind of uplift as books from the majority community. Oftentimes, lately, I've seen people use it as a way of separation of it's not own voices, so therefore it can't be a good book. That is not the way that she intended for it to be used. I do think that we need to look at books that are written from outside a community critically. And I don't mean critically in a bad way. I mean, in a you know critical thinking way. But hashtag own voices, I believe, is best thought of in the way that the creator of the hashtag meant. Let's talk about books that are great that we want to uplift. Just to add to that, I my books are from a culture. They're from the perspective of a person who does not share my specific culture or identity. They're set in post-apocalyptic China. My books were acquired before a lot of this stuff happened. And to be able to watch the community as all that stuff is happening. I mean, I think sometimes my books get a pass a little bit because they're set in the future. And so I'm not representing a specific identity mm-hmm. because it's not a real thing I'm showing. But there are references to Chinese culture. And I do like have a degree in Asian studies and a bunch of other stuff. But that doesn't necessarily make it my right or anything like that to write from that perspective. I, I, think, I think what you're saying is important because... When you look at the the numbers from the CCBC, the Cooperative Center for Children's Books from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, they have been keeping track of diversity numbers in the children's book world since, I think, 1985. And I started two books in 2009. We've joined Lee and Lowe in 2010. We Need Diverse Books as a hashtag and as an organization started in 2014. It really has drawn greater attention to the need for diverse books since then. It really blew up in 20... Like We started to see a, an uptick in representation in those CCBC numbers in 2017, I want to say, because that's when a lot of people started to acquire a little bit more. They keep track of both books by and books about people of color. The books by people of color, the numbers have stayed the same. The books about people of color have doubled in percentage points, at least. I, I don't know the exact you know numbers of books, but in percentage points, percent of POC authors has roughly stayed the same for like 30 years at about 10%. I think it came up a little bit up in the 90s, and then it's kind of hovered at about 10% ever since. Books about are about 25% the last time I knew. I think it was in 2018. So... Let's think about what that means for quality of representation and whose voice is being heard. And I think that it's not taking away a seat from a white author for us to increase um, seats for people of color. It's about who we're listening to as representative of a community, who we're listening to as the most knowledgeable. And I think that there's definitely room for people writing cross-culturally. It's the matter of whose voice is drowning out the other voices. So, for example, like I was talking about with Native American voices, the number of books about Native Americans 
has actually gone down because people have started caring more about who is writing these books. And so they're looking for more own voices, Native American books. And that takes time to develop a relationship with the Native American community, or I should say Native American communities, because there are more than 500 registered tribes in the United States alone. And they are wary of the white publishing establishment because, for good reason, their stories have been co-opted in the past. So once we start seeing that number of authors go up, I think people will be less concerned about who's writing what, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. Because, yeah. You know much more about it than I do, but (laughs) I think the numbers are so, they have not equalized or come even close yet. And so that is a a relevant thing to think about when you choose which books you read. And and I'm sure it's very relevant as editors decide which books they acquire. So, Right. I think you had one last question about allies supporting writers of color and indigenous writers. And I think that that's a really great place to end the discussion because we can talk about writing cross-culturally a lot, but I think the most important thing that anyone who is not from a community of color or an LGBTQ community can do is to and, and this is something that the children's book community is great at, is to support each other. You know, when somebody's book is launching, uplift them on book day and w- wish them a happy book birthday and tell people why you're excited to read their book. Put their book on your Goodreads to read list. You know, all those things that writers already do for each other, look for ways of doing that for the most marginalized voices and start reading diversely. If you don't keep track of your reading lists, try doing it for a year and see how much you read from any particular point of view. I publish diverse books. And when I started doing that, I realized that I really wasn't reading as widely as I could be. And once you start tracking what you're reading actively, you know, go out of your comfort zone and read something from somebody who maybe you hadn't considered before. Maybe you thought, oh, that book isn't for me. Well, the book is for you. You might have a learning curve, but maybe you'll grow from it and maybe you'll have a really great time. When it comes to science fiction and fantasy, there's a lot of fun books out there that people just, you know, maybe we just haven't gone out of our comfort zone to to try out. Thank you. That's fantastic. Fantastic advice there. So now we get to move on to the next portion of the podcast where we model a writing group and critique a submission from the audience. Quick review. We like to keep these non-prescriptive if possible. But if you'd like to check out the text of this submission and see all of our notes, check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So a brief summary. In this submission, a werewolf discovers a magical assassin who has been hidden for years, and he also discovers that he is now her master. So what are some things we liked about this submission? I thought the the magical assassin race of people who can be controlled by using a stone is kind of a cool concept. And I like that idea paired with the fact that our assassin, who has recently come out of her stone or wherever she was, has another secret that goes with it that she's not functioning properly. I have a few caveats about that later, but I think that's cool. And the thought of being trapped in other people's memories, that's a super cool concept. And there's a really nice world building signal when one of the werewolves says that Ryan's parents were human. So we know we're working with lots and lots of different kinds of people in this world. Agreed. I thought there were some really nice icebergging moments. And by that, we just mean a sentence or a phrase like Caitlin said that kind of hints at a whole bigger world picture. 
I really felt like there was some solid backstory behind these people that I was excited to find out. I felt like the writing itself was good. The voice is smooth, generally pretty good on sentence construction. As an editor, I see a lot of submissions that don't even have those basics down. And this really, the basics, like I didn't feel like I was being tripped up by anything. I'll second that I liked the the idea of sort of this dream prison. I think on its own, it's not a wholly original idea, but having the main character be in one at the start of a book, I haven't seen that before. So I was intrigued to see what the ramifications of that would turn out to be. I liked the proactivity of every character in this submission. So I think we see four characters, and the first is the main character, a female, and then they're the two men arguing over why they should or should not be her master. But then a second woman comes in, and at first she was described as as being beautiful, and I was thinking, oh no, here comes, you know, the token beautiful female. But then she is the one who comes in and is proactive, and she interacts with the main character separately. So I appreciated that. If we're good to move on then, what are some things that might need a second look? Well, if we're talking about proactivity, the unfortunately our viewpoint protagonist kind of vanishes for about three quarters of the submission. She's, I felt like she vanished pretty much the entire time. She She was watching other people as opposed to having an active plot herself. It felt a lot to me like the author was trying to get around just having some paragraphs of info dump where they just straight up told us what was going I on with the, the world. Thing. Unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, the solution I think they ended up going with was instead pages of Maiden Butler dialogue, yeah. which while I think that is a step up from just having a prologue that explains everything, it is unfortunately still not on the level of engaging storytelling. I was going to say that too. <laughs> What do we mean by Maiden Butler dialogue? I mean, it's not quite Maiden Butler in that. Well, they were telling some stuff to somebody who didn't know, but still, it still felt like it. Right. They didn't know. But the problem, the problem is that the person, the main character, our, our assassin, listening to this conversation has nothing to do with the conversation. She might as well not hear it, right? It doesn't, she doesn't react to anything that's said. She doesn't do anything she's in the exact same position at the end of it as she is in the beginning of it that was maiden, uh, sorry go ahead oh, i was gonna say maiden butler dialogue is like at the beginning of a play where the maiden butler come out on the stage and they're like i don't know if you've heard but lady grisby jumped off of a building you know they're giving the audience information that all of the characters in the play already know and they're doing it in a really like stilted fashion just to give it's like they're just trying to get the audience up to speed with everybody else, but that doesn't particularly work in books. And it doesn't always work in plays either. Right. But- it's also known as As You Know Bob dialogue because literally, as you know, Bob, this is what happened while you were standing right here. That kind of thing. I think in this particular example, it's not that the conversation isn't necessarily unrealistic. It's that it takes up a whole lot of space and doesn't develop our main character right. at all. Well, and also isn't necessarily relevant at this particular point in time. Like, right. like, I feel like the conversation, if it were in a different scene for a different reason, the conversation is well constructed. It's just not working right. where it is right now. Mm-hmm. It's, too, it's too early in the story for us to spend this much time disassociated from the viewpoint. Right. And probably my biggest issue with that was the disassociation. I, I really was craving more emotional tags about what the main character the assassin was feeling because we're hearing what sounds like big reveals and i was unable to place them in their perspective in the world because i didn't know if they were if they were something she already knew or if they weren't that important well and that that actually brings me to an important thing of establishing characters because i didn't feel like in the first few pages first of all 
I printed this out and there were no page numbers. And so I actually accidentally started on page 10. So I was already confused to start with. But then I figured it out. And the only character who's named for the first four or five pages is Sela. And there are several other characters being referred to as the man. And I wasn't even sure of the number of men in the room and who those men were and how to differentiate them by name until later. And then I wasn't even sure who was Artie and who was Duncan while they were talking to each other. So character establishment is way more important at this stage of the book than letting backstory be known to the reader. So I feel like spooling out that backstory is less of a priority in your first 10 pages than understanding who you're on the page with and why you care as the reader. I feel like one of my big issues in this is that I was really ungrounded right from the very beginning because we the character starts like appearing in this room and someone attacks her and she talks about how just a second ago she was being drawn and quartered. And I just I wasn't sure like and she also talks about being in a memory prison. So I assumed that she was in a memory prison and she had this memory from someone else that she was being drawn and quartered and that now she was in a room with some men and they were being attacked. And that was also a memory. But then we find out that this is really happening. Yeah. And I, I I was really confused about what was reality and what wasn't and how, and as people have mentioned before, what she was feeling about it and why it mattered. When you're and, doing... And related... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. A, you know, a fantasy science fiction world, especially one that has this many different rules from reality, you're already fighting an uphill battle to make it relatable and understandable. Throwing it into another, you know... We need to go deeper inception level of confusion from the get-go is just making it even harder than it already has to be. Which brings me to the fine line between intrigue and confusion. Because as a reader, I want to be intrigued enough to want to continue to turn the page, but not be confused. And so I think that world building actually is an important part here because, and I mean world building in the sense of getting us a grounding in the setting not necessarily in dumping everything about the world or the magic system on us, but I wasn't really sure even whether I was in a standard generic D&D kind of bar or a modern day bar where, you know, like urban fantasy and we're dealing with werewolves, urban fantasy kind of bar. I wasn't really quite sure what the setting was and how the characters were moving through it. So I, I was confused far more than I was intrigued, even though I felt like what I was reading flowed well. I agree. And I think with that, I can see these ideas. These ideas were super interesting to me. And I think this is getting a little prescriptive, but I think if I had had some more some more blocking tags, some more descriptive tags, some more emotional responses from the main character to kind of guide me like a roadmap, then I think I would have been able to understand things a lot more smoothly. I can definitely see this working. I just was a little confused as well. It may be prescriptive, but that's exactly what I would ask for as an editor. <laughs> so it's a good well, kind to, of You're allowed to say it. We're supposed to dance around it. <laughs> um, Does anyone have any final thoughts they'd like to share? I had a couple of little tiny nitpicky things, like, and they're in my actual, the text of the submission that will get posted. But one thing was that she gets like pretty awesomely mauled at the beginning but it, they don't mention it until later when there's like blood dripping down her face but it's from her point of view so like is there pain is she worried about bleeding out like that's that's one of the things i was going to bring up is that there's this kind of this cool thing going on where she's not supposed to feel emotions uh. because she's this perfect assassin except it's lampshaded that oh i'm feeling i don't remember what it was was it giddiness or something something like that i'm not supposed to do that that's this is i don't know what to do with this and i think that's a cool idea 
it's risky to do because without feelings, a character is hard to make relatable. Mm -hmm. But there's a bit of a problem in that right from the get-go, she is showing a lot of emotion. There's a lot of fear going on. And to me, at least, that did not gel with the I don't feel emotions. Because like the very first thing that's going on is like her heart's trying to leave out of her chest. And like obviously she's scared. Yeah. Does does fear not count as an emotion? So there was a little bit of a discontinuity with with that bit. As far as point of view goes, there's a lot of head switching going on. There are moments at which we are refer we, the reader, know relationships that the main character shouldn't know if she doesn't know these people. We are told names at a random point. Like, I'm, I'm not really quite sure on who is the master and who is the owner when it comes to Artie and Duncan, but it feels like she would know the name of the one that she knew before, but we're not revealed that name until much later. So as far as point of view and character knowledge goes, I think that could be smoothed out. Agreed. Well, if that's all the notes we have, thank you so much to this author for submitting. We enjoyed reading your work. And Stacy, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know I learned a lot and I'm sure the listeners did too. So thank you. If you'd like a first chapter critique from the podcast, you can find our submission guidelines on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you weren't chosen this week, feel free to submit again for future episodes. Remember, you can listen to this recording wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us ratings, reviews, and comments. It helps others to find the show. If you like us, please share the show with your friends. If you want to ask us questions or tell us we're awesome, you can find us on Twitter at Litservice or on Facebook and Instagram at Litservice Podcast, or you can email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Litservice is brought to you by Writers Clearinghouse. Writers Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writerch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. For Lit Service, thanks for listening and we'll see you in two weeks.